You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. This is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. We've been hitting you guys pretty hard with content lately and uh, not going to necessarily slow down today, but I I am going to kind of switch gears a little bit. I've got an inquiry from a, a guy named Zach Sussman, and I hope I said that right, Zach. Zach is a senior in high school. And he's a self-described supporter of the Strong Towns movement, which is really great. I, I've never met a high schooler who is into our stuff, but I'm really, really honored. I've been, he, he wrote me an email and it says, I've been assigned to write an essay on someone that makes an impact on the world. And I thought you would fit perfectly. As the founder of Strong Towns, you're helping to improve people's lives and make America more sustainable for the next century. In addition to the essay... I'm also doing a presentation on the person I interview. I think it would be a great opportunity to introduce my classmates to some of your ideas. I'm really, really honored by this. And so Zach then sent me a list of questions and I asked him, I said, could, could I do these in a podcast instead of in writing? And he replied, sure, absolutely. So this week for the podcast, I'm actually going to go through and answer these questions we'll see where this goes. I, I, I skimmed through them. I haven't really thought deeply about them. So we'll, we'll see, we'll see where this goes. The, the very first question is what made motivated you to start strong towns? And that's maybe where we got to give a little bit of history. Cause I actually didn't start strong towns in the sense that I didn't fill out the, the paperwork of the organization. Uh, I, in 2008, I started writing. And if you, you can think back to 2008, if you're in high school, you were, uh, what, fourth grade, third grade, fourth grade by then? Uh, you know, if you think back to 2008, 2008 was this time of, on one hand, some economic turmoil. You had had Bear Stearns collapse. You had had Lehman Brothers collapse. You had had Congress uh, told that if we don't appropriate a, a trillion dollars within 24 hours, the, the entire banking system would crumble and and by Wednesday no one would be able to eat because all the food would be gone from every store shelf. Kind of superimposed on that, you had this election cycle that was all about hope and change and opportunity and, and, you know, a a new beginning, but which I was, uh, you know, I, 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 I appreciated and was optimistic about, but, but maybe not as enthralled as others were at, at that point. And so, uh, amidst all this, I started writing and really I was trying to more than anything else, figure some things out for myself. Writing is one of these acts that forces you to think through things in a way that you, you don't think through them. If you're just kind of passively thinking about them, when you actually have to put your thoughts down on paper, it it forces you to work through them kind of more deliberatively. And so I said, I'm, I'm going to write and uh, I'm going to try to figure some of this stuff out. And the basic premise I was writing about is why are cities broke? Why are cities, despite all of this growth and all of this, uh, you know, housing boom and despite everything that had been going on positively, why, why do cities lack 
the basic resources to just two silly little things like, you know, keep a, a crosswalk painted or fix a sidewalk or, you know, maintain streetlights. So like, why, why couldn't, why could we do like multi-million dollar massive projects, but we, we couldn't do just the little things that really impacted people's lives. I had some thoughts and I had some ideas. I started to express them and develop them. And I, I, I did this publicly on a blog, but I was really sharing it with just a handful of friends of mine who kind of likewise were thinking about these issues. And, and with the feedback from them, uh, all of a sudden things started to just blow up. Like there were all kinds of people reading this stuff that I had never thought of or, or intended to, to be part of the audience. And the conversation expanded. And, you know, I was kind of pushed and, and prompted to, to go deeper intellectually into certain things, which was very satisfying. But after a, about a year of writing, a, a friend of mine, a colleague, stepped up and said, you know, there's a lot of stuff here. Uh, you should really start a nonprofit organization to, to deal with these ideas. And I, I had had some bad experiences with some nonprofits, quite frankly, places that had gotten gargantuan sums of money and then done nothing with it nothing productive with it. And I said, I'm, I'm, I don't want to start a nonprofit. I don't really like nonprofits. I don't want to be part of the nonprofit world. It's not my kind of thing. But this friend of mine was insistent and he said, I tell you what, I'll fill out the paperwork. You just keep writing. And so I did. And this colleague of mine, his name is John Commerce and another colleague of mine named Ben Olson. The three of us uh, on paper sat down and started an organization called Strong Towns. It took us a year to get our 501c3. The three of us were the first board of directors. And, you know, I did most of the writing, but they would contribute uh, every now and then. And then when we started the podcast, they were kind of early contributors to the podcast as well. So what motivated me to answer your question to start Strong Towns was this desire to figure some things out. And, and that prompted me to write. And then some very, you know, good people... Uh, who were motivated, inspired by this and, and, and wanted to push me a little bit further, kind of put the paperwork together and, and made it happen. How did you start Strong Towns? That's the second question. So I maybe kind of answered that in the first one. It, it was me starting to write. And, you know, in, in what has become true Strong Towns fashion, the chaotic but smart incremental approach, you know, we started with a blog. Uh, I I committed to myself that I was going to write three days a week. That was what I promised myself up front. Like I will write three days a week, kind of the way people go about exercising or dieting. The thing is I actually stuck to it. So I, I wrote three days a week, even if I was dead tired. And even if it was just something really short, I committed to a, a publishing schedule and you know, that went on uh, for, for, for many, many years in that way. Uh, the force of discipline of, of doing that is what really kept, I think, the momentum of it going. I couldn't have done it without the support of, of John and Ben. Uh, I couldn't have gotten through those early years. Uh, when I started it, I was actually full-time running my own planning company, which was doing work all over the state of Minnesota. And so this was stuff I was doing evenings and weekends and, and, and in my spare time, in a sense. And so... It was a it was a labor of love. I, I I should point out one of the big difference makers early on 
was a foundation called the Blandon Foundation in northern Minnesota. The the Blandon Foundation actually we got our I wrote for a year. We applied for our 501c3. That took another year. So at the end of 2010, uh, we were a, a 501c3. And then early the next year, so early 2011, a foundation in northern Minnesota, Grand Rapids, Minnesota, got a hold of me and said, we're really interested in what you're doing. Uh, you, you know, you're here in our area why don't you come up and, and chat with us? And I went up and gave them a, a presentation of what we were about and what we were doing. And right there, they said, we're very interested in this. We think this is a message that needs to get out. We've not heard anyone talk about this in this way. And they actually gave me three years of startup funding. They gave me $50,000 a year for three years. It's a huge sum of money at the time. Cause I mean, we, we literally had zero, our budget was zero. Uh, they gave us that, and that allowed me to go half time and then kind of work my way into full time. And the, you know, the, once it became full time, then I was able to obviously devote more time, more resources, more energy into getting this up and started and, and going as an organization. Uh, not really knowing where it was going to go or how it was going to operate, but you know, continued to develop the ideas and, and share them with others. And so. In in the startup story of Strong Towns, we really can't leave out the Blandon Foundation because, you know, I, I don't know, maybe something would have happened without them, but certainly they were the catalyst that kind of propelled us from the incubator infancy level to something more substantial. Third question then, what can we do, and then in parentheses, as teenagers uh, to help the movement? <laughs> I, I, I love, I love that because the qualifier as teenagers, uh, somehow indicates that, you know, what you would do would be a, of lesser quality and value than what others would do. And, and I just kind of reflexively push back on that. There's one thing that we ask people to do to help us. It's the number one thing that you can do to help us. And it's not donate money. It's not donate time. It's, it's, it's none of those things. The one thing that you can do to help us, whether you are a teenager or, you know, uh, out of school or whether you're elderly or, or whoever you are, the number one thing you can do to help us is to share our message with someone else. Just tell someone else about strong towns, about what we do, about what we're about, uh, tell them, you know, share a blog post with them. If you think it matters to them, share a podcast with them. If you think that it will resonate with them, share our message. This is, you know, we, we, we make an effort to touch on a whole bunch of different topics as a gateway in a whole bunch of different styles and formats, whether it's long form or short form, whether it is, uh, you know, written or audio or video, uh, you know, or just plain graphic. we we, we try to communicate our core messages in many different ways as a gateway for people uh, because we want you to be able to share our stuff with other people. Our theory of change is that our message is so powerful. Our, our message of fiscal responsibility, our, 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 our message of financial productivity, our message of great places for people being great places for us financially it's so powerful and it's, it's really when you get into it so obvious and intuitive that once you see it, once you hear it, it's almost impossible to unlearn. 
And so our theory of change, our theory of how we're going to make this country a better place is a goal of a million people who care. If we have a million people in this country who are aware of strong towns, who are talking about our message, then a lot of the destructive practices we have will just no longer be culturally acceptable. It will, it will no longer be acceptable to waste money widening streets in, through the middle of town. It will no longer be accessible, you know, acceptable socially to rip down your neighborhood school and build a new one out on the edge or run sewer and water miles out of town in the hopes of, of landing a business. It, you know, those things will become socially unacceptable. And in their replace, uh, things like small investments in our core neighborhoods to make them better places to live will become socially demanded. And so ours is a broad social cultural movement. We're shooting for a million people who care, a million people who care enough to share our message with others. And when we reach that threshold, we will be having enough of an impact on the national dialogue where our ideas cannot be ignored. And so if you want to do one thing to help us out, share our message with others. And, you know, because you use the qualifier as teenagers, <laughs> I, I think it's, you know, I, I'll add this. I think it's equally important to share our message amongst your fellow, you know, teenagers, those in your age cohort. But I think it's also important to share your message up, you know, share it with your parents, share it with your teachers, but then share it down too. talk to your, uh, you know, younger siblings about it. Talk to the people who look up to you and admire you because there are people in this world as small and insignificant as you may find yourself to be today. Uh, there are always younger people who look up to you, who think that you have the answers and you have some innate knowledge that they don't have. When you get older, you will realize that that's not the case, that just because you're older doesn't mean you have some uh, wisdom uh, or knowledge that, that others do not have. Uh, but share down, share down. I think it's a, it's a really, really powerful thing. All right, next question. What's been your biggest impact over the years? Wow, that's a tough one. Uh, my biggest impact. Um, you know, my gut says my biggest impact <laughs> has been on myself uh, in, in terms of uh, how I view the world. I mean, I, I, in a lot of ways, Strong Towns is still in the stage where we are a, a steel on steel kind of conversation. I mean, this week is a good example of this. We've been having a conversation about the word sprawl. And that conversation kind of stemmed out of the term smart growth, which we had a couple of weeks ago. And it's been really helpful for me to have the steel on steel kind of sharpening of my arguments and the overall conversation by having people push back and having people question things and having people, um, you know, help me or force me to refine the way that I communicate messages. But I'm, I'm guessing you want to know what, is the biggest impact that we've had on the country or places. And that's a really hard one. You know, I, years ago I had this local antagonist when I was first starting out. And of course, when I was first starting out, most of my dialogue was, you know, within 30 miles of where I lived talking to cities around there and sharing this stuff. And she would make a point to come to things where I was presenting and understand that, you know, these were small audiences, maybe a dozen people. So, you know, one antagonist in a room of a dozen people is, is quite a high percentage. And she would, you know, always stand up at the end of my presentations and go, okay, Chuck, you just like to hear yourself talk point to the strong town, you know, where are the strong towns in this country? And I would try to explain that, you know, 
this is a huge experiment. Everybody's done this. We're all in the same boat. We've all become fragile in the same way. And she'd say, not good enough. If you can't point to a strong town, then you're just talking to hear yourself talk. You know, you don't really have any answers. Uh, I, I have to say, I, I've kind of set a low bar in the short term for what uh, success or impact looks like. And so in one sense, I say low bar, I've kind of said a, high, a very high bar and a low bar. Our high bar is that I want the country to build in a strong town's way. I, I want strong towns to become the default way of going about uh, strengthening and, and reshaping and investing in and developing our, our cities, towns, and neighborhoods. By that standard, you know, we've, we've had zero success. We've had no success. There is no city in this country that builds in a, a strong town's way. We just, we're just not there, right? So we have a lot of work out ahead of us. Um, the lower bar, though, is, is, is where do we see, you know, signs of this dialogue taking hold? And quite frankly, they're, they're everywhere. And they show up here weekly. And I, I'm, I'm astounded by them. I'm astounded by the number of people who get a hold of me and said, you know, look, we, we had this uh, meeting at City Hall and we shared your videos. And then we talked about it for two hours and it was great. And I, 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 to me, that's like, a, that's having a huge impact. That's a, that's a huge success. I'll have people who email me and say, you know, uh, uh, this colleague of mine shared this one piece that you wrote with me and it completely transformed the way I look at my city. And I get, I mean, I get those kind of emails all the time, all the time. And so I, I can see, you know, that impact happening, it, it's, it's far less tangible because it's not something you can point to on the ground. It's far more, far more esoteric, you know, but I wasn't getting that six years ago. You know, I wasn't getting that three years ago. Uh, I get those all the time now, all the time. And it, it's really, really powerful because you can feel from where I'm sitting, the, the conversation moving, right? You can feel the earth kind of shifting a little bit as more and more people are talking about this. I do have to, if I had to say the biggest impact um, and just point to one place, I, I am going to give a shout out to Hayes, Kansas right now because Hayes, Kansas is the one place that has, I think, tried the hardest or, or, or been the most diligent and committed to figuring this stuff out and trying to apply it and make it work in a place. Very unique place, uh, you know, a, a place literally in the middle of nowhere, a long ways from anything around it. Uh, Josh McCarty with Urban 3 called it, you know, an Australia kind of situation, meaning, you know, you go to Australia and all these very unique uh, things evolved over a long period of time because of the relative isolation. Hayes, Kansas City, or Hayes, Kansas, has some relative isolation. And so a lot of kind of unique things are able to evolve there that uh, maybe I would have a more difficult time evolving in, in other parts of the country. It's been great to watch them. Uh, Toby Doherty is, is a brilliant guy, incredibly hardworking, dedicated to this place. And it's been helpful and instructive to me to watch them try to take these things and put them into actual practice in their city. And, and I, they, they've done the best. They've come the furthest. 
Uh, they still have a long way to go, but I'm, I'm really impressed with the leadership that they've shown. And, and if I had to point to one success story, that, that would be it. All right. Next question. What has challenged you and strong towns the most? Um, to me, that's obvious. Uh, <laughs> today, strong towns is a media organization, right? We share content, we distribute content and we nudge people to take action. That, that is what we do now back up a second, understand who I am. I am an engineer, right? I am a planner. I work for many years as a consultant. When you put those three together, there's nothing in that resume. There's nothing in that skill set that says, you know, head of a me international media organization, right? Someone who crafts messages and shares them with others. Someone who, uh, you know, tr tries uh, to do advocacy uh, in strictly a messaging framework. So for me, I, I've always liked to write and I've always enjoyed communicating and ideas and, and I love to read. But what I, what has been the biggest challenge to me is learning how to do this well. And I'll, I'll say, go back uh, a couple of years ago, uh, you know, even just a couple of years ago, we, we were kind of, we knew that this was where we were having the biggest impact. We knew that people reading our stuff, sharing our stuff, listening to the podcast, watching our videos, this was the the place that we were seeing the largest change, the largest impact from our efforts. But, uh, you know, I, I'm a consultant. Uh, the other staff we had at the time uh, came from a, a similar background. We had to pay the bills in a sense. And so we found ourselves out doing a lot of things that felt really comfortable to us, right? We were out doing consulting work. We were out helping you know, this city here with their ordinance or this city here with this streetscape or this city here with a, a certain plan. And those were all, you know, uh, things that were comfortable for us in our wheelhouse, in a sense, things that we knew we could do and that we could essentially pay our bills and stay in business doing and continue to, you know, in our spare time, share this message and grow the kind of intellectual capacity of this movement. It, it took um, the crowds getting huge uh, for me to really wake up and say, look, you're not doing this right. Uh, I, I would show up at these curbside chats, you know, five years ago, we, we go out and give presentations in communities around the country, around North America, really. And I would show up and, you know, there would be 20 people there, 25 people there. And you know, that they were interested and there'd be a couple there who were really enthusiastic. By the end, everybody was into it. But, you know, to start off with, it was largely people who had invited other people and you might have one or two people who really knew what was going on. Now I show up to places and, you know, it is, it is a rare instance where we don't have a hundred people, right? And a lot of them have been reading our stuff and are really enthused and uh, have brought other people who they've shared stuff with who are equally enthused. You know, I, I will speak in front of, you know, audiences of two and three and 400 pretty regularly now. And so, uh, you know, the thing, it, it, things have changed, right? Things have 
changed dramatically. There was a, there was a point there where I just looked up and said, I'm, I'm doing this wrong. Why am I spending my time uh, doing consulting in this city? You know, as, as, as great as it is and well-intentioned as it is and important as it is for us uh, to stay around to, to do some of those things, this doesn't feel like it's making a difference. This doesn't feel like our calling, like what we need to do to actually move the conversation. And so in a lot of ways, uh, we took a leap of faith. We said no more consulting, uh, no more of this stuff that feels comfortable for us that we're familiar with, you know, the, no more of this business model that we know we're, we're going to embark on an entirely different business model. One that really has very few, um, examples. Uh, so I had to figure out how to do this. I had to go study media companies. I had to read books on marketing. I've read two dozen books on messaging and marketing and, and we had to try different things. We had to experiment with different things. We had to, uh, put our faith in our members that our members would actually be there to support us financially. Uh, when we, you know, devoted our time and resources to them instead of to, you know, other things. That was a huge challenge to me, to the organization, uh, to our board of directors, to our staff. Uh, that was a, a huge, huge leap of faith. I have to say, it's still kind of an open question on whether we're going to succeed at this. I mean, we have some membership goals for this year. Uh, we're slightly behind that right now. Uh, although there's some good internal reasons why, and I'm optimistic we'll meet our membership goals, but those membership goals, of course, are tied to revenue goals and the revenue goals are what we need to, uh, to stay in business and be able to do the things that we do in, in, in the way that we're going about doing them. So we're still kind of in the leap of faith thing, but, uh, I, I, I think in a way we were, uh, I don't want to say vindicated because it, it wasn't full vindication, but we were buoyed. We were, we were uh, encouraged by the e enormous response we had last November to our, our member drive. That was our first member drive where we were, you know, fully uh, a media organization, fully focused on our media efforts, not doing any outside work at all. And we needed this member drive to go and it it went huge. It, it 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 vastly exceeded the high end expectation. I before the member drive, I sat down and put together. Here's our low end expectation. If we go below this, we're going to be in deep deep trouble. Uh, here's my high end expectation. If things went incredibly like better than I could ever imagine, here's what the high end would be. We were over the high end by Thursday morning of a, of a, you know, five day member drive that began on Monday. By the time we got to the end of business, uh, on, on Friday, we f were incredibly encouraged that the path we were on and the things we were setting out to do were actually going to work. So the biggest challenge has been to take this, you know, knucklehead engineer, a planner who likes to write and actually convert me, uh, and the organization around me into people who can actually make a difference. Um, that's not what I'm trained to do or naturally inclined to do, but it's, it's been a great challenge. And you know what? It's been really rewarding. I, I've, I've liked it. All right. Technical question. What should we do with declining suburbs in the coming decades? Um, light them on fire. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> Someone will quote me on that, and then uh, that will be on Twitter or something. Uh, I, I wrote a piece that was back in Thoughts on Building Strong Towns, Volume 1, which, incidentally, Volume 2 is done uh, at the publishers and will be coming out here very soon. If you're a member, uh, you're going to get a free digital ebook version of that. Uh, Thoughts on Building Strong Towns, Volume 2. But anyway, going back to Volume 1, uh, I um, wrote a piece in there called Suburban Salvage that talked about what I thought the ultimate fate would be for many suburban areas. And incidentally, as a side note, I was on Minnesota Public Radio once and, uh, you know, real controversial kind of show. We were talking about transportation funding and, and kind of going back and forth. And of course, I was the the odd one out, right? Uh, everybody else was kind of a industry insider advocating for more money. And I was, I was this crazy person talking about <laughs> how, you know, this system makes no sense and we shouldn't be fighting congestion and da, da, da. At the very end of the show, and I mean literally with like 10 seconds left, uh, the host, who's a great guy, Tom Weber, said, Chuck, uh, you wrote a piece recently about suburban salvage that uh, much of uh, the suburbs in Minnesota will be sal- turned into salvage material. What, in the closing moments you have, you know, how would you respond uh, and elaborate on that? And I, I literally have like five seconds. And uh, I knew I was going to be in like a, a world of hurt. And he kind of laughed. He knew, too, that he had set me up. He was being funny. Uh, I, I, I do think that our suburbs have three kind of different fates that will await them. And, and I, I'm not going to say that I can predict, uh, you know, which areas will experience which fate. Uh, but I think that they, you know, every place that is uh, a suburb now today will experience one of these three things. Um, one, they will uh, develop and become more financially productive so that they will be, it will be a financially logical thing to sustain and maintain them. Uh, in other words, uh, you will see them thickening up. You will get more housing units. You will get more commercial units. Things will start to grow internally uh, to the point where you have enough viable, enough viable activity there and a connection to you know, some other major center. Uh, you will have enough going on that you'll actually, when you have to decide in a, in a triage kind of way, where, what are we going to fix and what are we not going to fix, that those places will actually be fixed, right? You, you understand what's prompting all this. When, when you don't have enough money to maintain everything, uh, some things will not be maintained. You know, you, you can look at Detroit as like an early case study of this, right? You know, the spread everything spread out over a wide area. Uh, there's not enough stuff there uh, to generate the wealth to actually maintain the stuff that you need to maintain the stuff, right? So um, <laughs> it's a lot of stuff. Uh, and so what happens is that, you know, when the government has uh, to spend a million dollars a year fixing stuff and you only have a hundred thousand, uh, only 10% of what you have is going to actually get fixed and the rest of it, something else will happen. What I'm suggesting is that part of, uh, what happens at the suburbs is that there will be parts where that 10% is spent, where that money that we actually have is spent. I, I think some places will spend it on like the rich places, right? 
because those will be the people that will show up to the meetings and those will be the people that say we want the money spent here. Well, you know, the poor neighborhoods will be trying to survive and they won't be politically connected and what have you. So they won't show up and they won't get the money. I think those places will ultimately fail too, because you can only, you know, reverse Robin Hood for so long uh, when things start to break down. And I, I think that's actually part of what you're seeing in Detroit. I mean, Detroit is a reviving urban core uh, surrounded by pockets of kind of gated affluence uh, and a sea of despair. Um, so I, I, I think what you will see is you will see places that uh, spend the few resources they have on places that they perceive as viable, whether those are the rich gated communities, which I think would be a shame because it, it, it's not a viable model, or whether those are places that have started to thicken up and grow and become essentially more like little towns. And those little towns can be connected to other little towns and you'll have viable centers that emerge out of this kind of wide sea of, of suburbanism. That's the first thing I think will happen to some places. Uh, the second thing I happen, I, I think will happen to some places is that you will just have decline. You, you will just have uh, places that are stuck and start to decline and just like stay in decline. Um, you know, Detroit again is, is filled with these places. Uh, you know, Ferguson, Missouri is, uh, used to be like the suburb of choice in the St. Louis area and now is in the third life cycle and is in this kind of locked into decline where literally you have so much debt, you're paying more interest on debt than you pay on, on maintenance every year while your maintenance costs just skyrocket. And your obligations overwhelm you. And so there's, there's no way to keep up, right? You just see continual, continual decline. I think that the tragedy of this is that we are trapping a lot of very poor people in very despotic places. And, and to me, if I am a, a policymaker, th this is the problem that I attack. This is the problem that needs to be dealt with. I'm not going to pretend that I know the answer to this. Um, I'm not going to pretend that I have a solution, but to me, the, um, the next great social, uh, discontinuity, the next great social problem that we are going to face as a nation is going to be the trapping of poor disenfranchised people in failing suburban areas and understand why, why I say that. When we walked away from poor disenfranchised people and left them behind in urban areas in the 1950s and 60s, uh, that was that was not a great thing, right? That was a, that was a really really bad thing. You saw crime rise. You saw, uh, you know, all all the despair metrics kind of went off the charts. These were bad times. But I'll point out, uh, we left those people behind in neighborhoods that were coherent. Right. You, you could actually walk to a corner store. You could actually walk to a job. You could perhaps in, in, take transit somewhere uh, to get things that you needed or to go places you needed to go. When we trap people uh, who are disadvantaged and disenfranchised in suburban areas, those are not coherent landscapes. Those are not places where people are going to be able to walk somewhere to handle their daily needs. These are not places where people are going to be able to find a job 
that doesn't require them to have a, a car that they can't afford, right? So I, I do think that the greatest social challenge we have in the next generation is going to be dealing with the fallout or the impacts of uh, people who are poorly matched. Look, to live in a suburb, you have a lot of money, right? Because you got to have cars, you got expensive infrastructure, everything is spread way out. Your burn rate is huge. You can't trap poor people in these places or, or you just destroy them. I mean, you take everything about being poor that is difficult and you magnify it over and over and over. And so, you know, I, I, I think that that is that kind of despair is, I think, going to become synonymous with suburbs in the way that it's become, you know, it, it, it is and has been synonymous with suburbs throughout all of human history. It's just that Americans, it, it will be way worse, It'll be way worse. And I, I say that understanding you know, you're a student, a young guy, if, you, if you've never had a chance to travel overseas, please do. Uh, it will be incredibly eye-opening for you. And, and if you get a chance, you'll get to see the notion that suburbs for pretty much the rest of the world, uh, it, it are, I won't say has a negative connotation, but it has a very different connotation than in America. And pretty much the rest of the world and in pre you know, automobile uh, America, the suburbs were where the poor people lived. They lived out on the edge of town because they couldn't afford to live in the center. They couldn't afford to live where all the stuff was. Uh, There there are a lot of uh, downsides with that, but culturally, socially, politically, there's also a lot of upsides to that too because these are places where you can uh, affordably kind of get started. They're places that when successful, they grow incrementally. This allows wealth to be kind of distributed to people who uh, have been disadvantaged. It allows them to build their own nest egg. Uh, I, I don't want to um, gloss this over and make it sound better than it is because it's, it's truly not. But when you're dealing with despair, you're dealing with people who are, are disadvantaged. Uh, the, the, the traditional system and what you'll find around the world uh, <laughs> Uh, while not great and not something to covet is certainly way, 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 like infinitely better than the situation that we have set up and seem to be sliding to here in this country. All right. So those are the, those are the first two. The third one, the first one is pockets of places where we invest what little wealth we have to keep them going. The second is large swaths of despair uh, where people are trapped in, in poverty. The third then uh, it are, are places that are salvaged. And this is where that term suburban salvage comes from. The idea that we go out and uh, from a building material standpoint, just take what we can, right? I, I, I think a, this is such, a, this is such a, a, a crazy concept for people because they look at the suburbs and even, even places that are 30, 40, 50 years old and they say, well, these are, these are just fine houses, Chuck. Why would we salvage them? And I have to point out, you know, when we walked away from our core cities, what did we do? We did everything we could to tear the buildings down. And these were great buildings. I mean, I just look at my hometown here. We tore down the nicest buildings, right? We tore down the, the federal post office, you know, made of granite, right? We tore down the train depot, which is the thick oak wood. We, 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 tore, this, we tore this thing down. We tore down the brick armory, right? 
We tore down the old theaters. We, we, we tore down all this stuff. Why do we do it? Because we didn't value it anymore. We weren't using it. It, did, it didn't have value. And we actually valued it more as parking lot. If you would have gone back to the people you know, in the early 1900s who built that huge federal courthouse and poured just enormous amount of wealth into making it happen, and if you would have told them, you know what, someday in the future, uh, people are going to feel uh, so wealthy on one hand and so ambivalent uh, on the other hand that they're going to actually tear this down so that they can have just vacant space. They, they would have thought, you, you know, you're insane. Like, like, that's, not, that's not possible. That will never happen. Yet it happened over and over and over again all across North America. The idea that we would, when we no longer value these places, uh, you know, find some use for them. Yeah, we will. We'll find use for them as salvage. We'll actually go tear them down. We'll take out the copper uh, pipe and the copper wiring. Uh, we'll take off any wood trim we can get. We'll salvage the fixtures and, uh, you know, the bathtubs and whatever we can. And the rest of it, you know, we'll either let rot or we'll, you know, have a system of deconstructing and, uh, you know, recycling and making use of it. That's what we'll do because we'll need those materials for other places. I mean, we'll need that stuff. So, yeah, I, I think that, you know, some of the suburbs will become viable because, uh, you know, they will they will thicken up and become financially productive. That will be a very small percentage. Uh, a fairly sizable percentage uh, will um, just be a pocket of despair and be our largest social challenge in the next generation. And then the, the third thing that will happen is that a lot of it will be salvaged. It will just be uh, turned into salvage material and there will be a, a big industry in going out and, and salvaging suburbs. You, you guys saw The Force Awakens, right? And the, like, you know, you've got these scavengers out there. I, you know, I, I, I don't want to depict like this black, you know, dark future, but um, there will be a component of that, especially when it comes to our suburbs. All right. Two more questions. Uh, how can we prepare as a nation for when the bubble bursts? Um, that's a really good, uh, I, I'm going to parse that question a little bit because you said, how can we prepare as a nation? And to me, I, I hear, how can we prepare? Like, how can I as an individual and, and other individuals prepare? And then how can we as a country prepare? And those are two like vastly, vastly different questions. I, I think the realm that I go to right away is on the individual and the neighborhood. And, you know, I had Chris Martinson and Mr. Money Mustache on the podcast uh, last week. Um, they would go through and, and tell you all the individual things you can do to become more resilient starting with meeting your neighbors, getting to know the people in your neighborhood, uh, starting to grow your own food and support local means of food production. Uh, you know, make yourself resilient to high gas prices. So start to walk and bike and figure out how to make your world live on that. You know, you go to Mr. Money Mustache and, and he's talking about essentially lowering your financial burn rate so that you can live off of less and grow accustomed to that lifestyle. I think that those are all great strategies for an individual and groups of individuals. I think cities uh, and local units of government need to start uh, shifting their approach 
away from looking up the government food chain for the next grant program or handout or, or what have you, and instead look down uh, the food chain at your constituents and at the people in your community and say, how do we best actually identify and meet people's needs? Uh, we, we have the money to fix our cities. Uh, we just have a really screwed up process right now. I think if cities could adjust themselves to actually go out and say, where are our people struggling and what's the next smallest thing we do to address that and fix that, uh, it would be a revolution in this country. And I think the cities that, that do that uh, will, will see enormous gains. I mean, we, we see this where people are outdoing, you know, cities are outdoing small little projects. Um, I, I think that's really key. And, and to tie those two together, you know, individuals and, uh, and, and cities, I think it's really important to not distinguish too much between them. Uh, you know, what can I do to prepare for when the bubble bursts? Take ownership of your place. Take ownership of your street. Take ownership of your neighborhood. Take ownership of your parks. Actually, don't defer what needs to be done to the city. I work with the city. And I think, you know, to the extent that the city will be a partner, be a partner with the city. But don't think that just because you pay taxes that you don't uh, you don't have on one hand of the ledger a responsibility and on the other side of the ledger a right to actually uh, take ownership of your place. Um, when we get then to the national level, what can we do as a nation to prepare for when the bubble bursts? I, I, I you know, we we could we could talk theoretically all day about what some of those things are. Um, I mean, clearly I, I believe very strongly that, you know, our entire national economic policy is about postponing the time until the bubble bursts. Um, we have essentially gotten into an economic situation where we counteract every, uh, time the market tries to correct, uh, our craziness. We come back in with a, a larger and larger correction. So the market says, uh, you know, you, you, your, your economy is distorted. Uh, you know, we think housing prices are too high. Housing is going to go down. Oh, no, 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 no. Housing's not allowed to go down. Um, so, you know, we, we do things like that over and over and over again. And, and essentially what we are doing is we are stealing from the future in order to kind of sustain the status quo as, as long as we can. That's what the housing bubble was about. That's what the housing bubble, you know, now re housing recovery was about. Uh, that's the situation we're in right now. And so, you know, as a nation, uh, there's a part of me that says, you know, I, I want to get it on, right? Like I want to uh, stop this whole bubble stuff and just get through the tough part. Um, but if I were running the country, uh, what I would do over the course of uh, four to eight years is I would start trying to introduce as many kind of elements of painful market feedback as we can get so that we not only stop doing the, the ridiculous things that we're doing now today, but, but we actually create the overall economic framework where our cities, our families uh, start to... Uh, have their 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 logical spending decisions rewarded 
and they're illogical ones. The, the ones that uh, today we depend on because we're a consumer economy, we depend on to keep everything going, have those decisions first not rewarded and then second, you know, in time uh, actually discounted. That's a really tough one. Okay, last question uh, from Zach Sussman, high school senior. Out of all the cities and towns you've visited, which ones have been your favorite? And of course you had to ask this because now there are going to be all these places that I've visited that are going to say, why did you list us, Chuck? Um, let, me, let me talk in like some generalities. I, I, I really like the northeast of this country and I, I really like it because there was enough that was built there before we went crazy as a country um, where a lot of it is still there. And if you want to see the most like coherent places that are around in this country, the Northeast is it. I mean, they have the most coherent building form, the most coherent places, the, the places that I think you could live in the easiest uh, today, tomorrow, and, and through whatever is to come. I think the Northeast of this country is fantastic. Now, I, you know, Burlington, Vermont, I was in this year. Portland, Maine, I was in last year. Really liked both of those places. Um, I can't see myself living in those places. It's just like culturally, it's not me. And, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of the, uh, the problems that they face have to deal with the very large bureaucratic systems they've set up. Um, I gave a speech once in Buffalo uh, to a group of, of policymakers and they said, yes, this is exactly what we need to do. Chaotic, but smart. Um, and then in the next breath, they said, we need to go to Albany and get a billion dollars to do this program. And I thought, no, 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 you didn't really fully understand uh, what I was saying. Uh, I, I love the Northeast. I, I would have a difficult time um, living there. Let's go to the other side of the country then, uh, the Southwest. I, I, I love California. California is perhaps my favorite state in terms of just visiting and being. I, I, I love, love, love California. It is uh, one of the last states I would ever live in. Uh, a, a good friend of mine, John Anderson, actually, uh, many of you listening may know him. John Anderson um, emailed me a, a couple of years ago and said he was looking at leaving California. He said, I just need to get, uh, you know, I, I, I want to get someplace where they're closer to the end of the Ponzi scheme breakup than the beginning. Um, California is a fiscal wreck and really there is no way to fix what's wrong with California. No, no way that I can discern, um, that whole suburban salvage conversation we had earlier. Um, that is just going to be California writ large, right? But you know, San Diego is one of the most beautiful places in the country being completely overrun, uh, now with outside capital. And completely distorting the market along with the things they're doing to, to, to make that happen as well. But at the end of the day, we'll still be a beautiful place and a place where people want to live. So California is is wonderful. I, I have a particular affinity for Pennsylvania. I was in Carlisle last week. Uh, Carlisle, Pennsylvania, named the strongest town in America. Uh, I, I, I like Pennsylvania. It's It's a kind of, it's one of these combinations of the the structure and form I like of the Northeast with the kind of attitude and, and mindset uh, that you find here in the Midwest that I'm maybe more comfortable with. 
So I, I kind of tend to like Pennsylvania. And actually, uh, there have been a couple times, you know, I, I, I like Carlisle a lot. I love the city of York. Uh, I was in Hershey, Lancaster, um, a lot of these places. I actually uh, thought seriously about trying to move to Gettysburg, which, you know, I, I, I've been there a couple times. I, I just love it. I, I really, really, I mean, I, I love the history of it, but I just also love the, I love the place. I, I just really find it um, to be kind of my style and my speed. Uh, it hasn't happened. It probably won't happen. But uh, I, I really like it there. As a Minnesotan, I have this uh, kind of romantic relationship with Florida. And Florida is, is the strode capital of the, the nation. It is a really messed up, weird place. But it has these pockets of places that are really cool. And, you know, we from Minnesota like to go to Florida in the winter because Minnesota, brutally cold in the winter, uh, I don't mind it, but it's nice to get away to Florida, you know, for a week at a time or what have you, uh, to, to warm up and see the sun again and, you know, kind of remember what, uh, life outside is like or outside without, you know, five layers on. Uh, so I have kind of this like romantic vision of Florida and I, I, I first got into urban design through celebration Disney's new urbanist town uh, outside of Disney World near Orlando. And it still holds some like romantic charm for me. I, I, I would, if my wife said, yeah, I'll move to Celebration, which she never will, I, I would move there in a heartbeat. I, I really like it despite the, the critiques and despite the fact that it is, has more of a Disney uh, town kind of feel than an actual place kind of feel. I, I still like it. Um, big cities... I'm not averse to, I can't see myself living in any, I do love Washington, DC. I mean, I think Washington DC is the most beautiful city in this country. Uh, it's just gorgeous. Uh, you know, not only the monuments, but the, the, the neighborhoods. I, 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 I hear people complain about their height limitations. I think it's done amazing things to make it a beautiful city. I really like Washington DC. I could never live there again. It's the culture more than anything else. It's just not my kind of place. I had a job offer once to move there and I said, there's, there's no way there, there's no way that I could do that. Um, love New York city was there last week. Uh, how can you not like New York city? I mean, there's so many great things going on there. San Francisco. Uh, I have to say Vancouver. I got the greatest tour of Vancouver from a guy named Gordon price. And he really made me like it. I mean, he really, uh, showed it to me in a way that, uh, kind of reached me and I said, wow, I, I love this place. I could really live here. I've also been to Montreal, which I thought was, uh, you know, w one of my favorite cities in North America. It's just a great, great place. Again, I'm not a big city person. Love to visit. I have to say at the end of the day, and this is going to be kind of a cheesy way to end this podcast, but I, I like Brainerd. I, I like, I like where I live. Um, Am I eternally frustrated by it? Yes. Would it hold up in a, in any type of critical uh, comparison to what like a real good city would be? No, not not in any way, shape, or form. It, it wouldn't. It's a it's a pathetic place in many ways, and we're doing a lot of really dumb things to make it even worse. Um, but I find myself uh, in love with this place. I find myself caring about it deeply. 
I find myself caring about the people. I find myself attached to them. They're, they're my friends. They're my neighbors. Uh, they're my family. You know, my, my kids go to the school, the grade school that I went to, that my mom went to. Um, that makes me just feel happy. It makes me just feel good about myself. I can see um, a way that I would leave here and, uh, you know, I, I, would, I would have some sad feelings about doing that, but I, I could see that happening. I could definitely see that happening, but I can also see me uh, kind of free to choose wherever I wanted to and ending up here, uh, particularly if, uh, you know, we can start to realize uh, the shift that I see a lot of cities around this country making where you have new leadership, new ideas, new visions for how the place can be made great. And, uh, you know, people kind of stepping forth and, and, and putting that forth and the broader population embracing it. I, I feel like we're close to that kind of revolution here as well. And it's far overdue and much needed. Zach Sussman, uh, a senior in high school, a supporter of the Strong Towns movement, Thank you so much for sending the questions. Thank you to everybody who hung with us here and, and listened to the answers. I uh, appreciate everything you're all doing to help us share this message with others. Keep, uh, keep at it and keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Take care. We need your help. If you think the Strong Town's message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit Agenda 21. Yeah.